Good morning. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for that nice introduction. And this is just a couple miles north of Seattle, so it's my enticement. We, we don't have tall buildings, we just have tall mountains in Seattle. Um, today I'm going to focus my talk on type of diabetes, although you'll see me wandering into other autoimmune diseases, um, because I want to talk not just about some pathways of fat tolerance and type of diabetes, but also talk about the translational approach that uh, we've been using to try to uncover these differences in human disease. So the way we think about autoimmunity in humans is that it's actually type 1 diabetes in particularly, but other autoimmune diseases as well, clearly are impacted by genetics. Um, but as we've learned from the genome-wide association studies, there's many genes that are modestly linked to this disease. So over 40 genes are associated with type 1 diabetes. Um, and so one of our goals is to unravel the meaning of that. Um, so as we think about that, we have genetic variants that impact different biochemical pathways. Those pathways, um, when altered, uh, alter cellular function, and we have to consider the fact that no single pathway defect is likely to be the cause of the common diseases that we're studying. Um, but in fact, it is a combination of those together that put individuals at risk. And then when they're triggered by the appropriate environmental triggers, such as infections, um, that, um, the gut microbiome, um, and other triggers are obviously possible, then you'd go on to get a disease like type 1 diabetes. We've taken three approaches to try to unravel this. Um, uh, embracing the complexity and trying to simplify it. So the first is to assess the function of cell types that we know participate in disease, uh, particularly in models of, of autoimmunity. The second is to examine pathways that have been implicated by the genetics of an autoimmune disease uh, and try to understand how they may be altered in that disease. And the third is to actually start with a genetic variant, define its functional outcome in healthy subjects, and then um, investigate that same pathway in uh, individuals with disease. So I'm going to try to talk about each of these approaches with three different stories today. Now to do this, um, we've developed several tools at VRI to help perform translational research. We have a pool of well-characterized subjects um, healthy subjects, we have over a thousand of them, type 1 diabetics, um, these patients are recruited by my colleague, Carla Greenbaum. And then we also have a cohort of other autoimmune diseases I'll be showing you data from. This includes a large group of MS patients, um, inflammatory bowel disease patients, lupus, rheumatoid arthritis, and we actually have a group of allergy patients we've become quite interested in. From these subjects, we have blood samples that we keep in our biorepository, um, which includes frozen PBMC, so we can go and do cellular assays as well as genetic, transcriptional, uh, and serologic studies. And these patients are actually willing to come back to give us blood, which is nice, so we can get fresh samples. We also do genotyping on all of our subjects. We do in-house genotyping. We also have many of these subjects immunochipped, so we have over 150,000 SNPs done on them. And this is just an example of what our in-house typing looks like. When we have a SNP, we have the risk allele, and then we're able to look at the number of subjects, both healthy or with diabetes. An important thing is that we're careful in selecting our subjects. Um, our controls are screened for autoimmunity, both themselves and their first-degree relatives. 
Um, we try to always age, gender, and race match our subjects. This becomes very important when you're doing genetic studies. We know things about their recent health. We know if they've been immunized within the last few weeks. We know if they're sick, and we try not to draw them if they've been getting sick. And in patients, we know about their therapy and their disease activity. So um, in terms of thinking about this approach in type 1 diabetes, in some ways, I think of this as a, a, a model for the study of human autoimmune disease. And that's maybe because I'm really a rheumatologist. Um, but uh, in type 1 diabetes, we have clearly defined criteria for disease risk and also for disease diagnosis. Very different as compared to lupus, which is a much more heterogeneous disease. Type 1 diabetes has an early age of onset, um, and the patients aren't on immunomodulatory therapy, so that allows us to go back to them on multiple occasions without the concern of those drugs impacting them. And so today I'm going to talk about I'm going to start by talking about TREGS and our studies looking at those, um, move on to talk about the IL-2 signaling pathway, and then uh, finish with a brief story about PTPO22, which Gina have developed a long relationship with. And we're gonna, I'm going to show you the data in type 1 diabetes, but I, I want to extend those uh, findings to other diseases. So part one, assessing the function of a cell type uh, known to participate in an autoimmune disease. And so we're going to start with TREGS. Um, and we know there's multiple regulatory defects um, in TREGS in diabetes. Um, we know that if you have an absence of TREGS, which is seen in the disease IPEX, where there's no FOXP3, uh, very similar to the scurfy mouse, those individuals are either born with type 1 diabetes or develop it within a very short period of time. We know if you have defective TREG function that you can go on to get uh, diabetes in, in models. Um, and we also know that um, T effector cells can be resistant to TREGs and that can lead to autoimmunity and, and has been described in, in lupus and psoriasis and I'll be talking today about type of diabetes and MS. We also know that if you do adoptive T-Rex therapy in animal models, you can cure diabetes. So it appears to be effective in a model system. So we started many, several years ago to think about what's involved in the, in the development of type 1 diabetes in humans, are T-Rex important, um, and then what causes this lost tolerance. <coughs> so the functional impact of uh, impairment in T-cell regulation of type 1 diabetes was quite evident from both the example of IPEX, which I gave you, where you get early onset of diabetes, um, it wasn't evident in terms of looking at the peripheral blood and, and counting the number of Tregs. In, in type 1 diabetics, although there's some controversy about that, for the most part, there hasn't been a predominant or pronounced defect in Treg number. But functional studies have been performed before we got involved, showing that when you did a co-culture experiment with Tregs from uh, a patient and their uh, T effector cells, that you had impaired suppression. And so this is work from uh, Mark Peekman's lab and Tim Tree um, showing this defect suppression in type 1 diabetes. So we wanted to ask this question in part because we uh, were interested in using a different type of Treg called an adaptive Treg. Um, but we also wanted to develop an assay that could really let us test this uh, with, a, with a group of patients. And so 
Um, a postdoc in my lab, Anya Snyder, developed a CSFE-based assay where we take the effector T cells from a patient and we um, activate them with beads, CD3 and CD28, and co-culture them with Tregs. Um, it's an artificial system, but it's a very clean system, so you can ask specific questions about the Tregs and the T effectors. And this is what the data looked for a group of 12 healthy control subjects, so we felt like we had a good reproducible assay. It was the same whether I used adaptive T-Rex or natural T-Rex directly sorted from the blood, so we felt it was consistent. And we could actually mix and match the cells in this assay and get the same results. So it allowed us to individually interrogate the T-Rex and T-effectors because we were able to use um, allogeneic uh, interactions without a problem. So when we did this, we replicated the data of others that there was impaired suppression with type 1 diabetics when we did a co-culture with their T-Rex and T-effectors when we compared them to controls. And this is what the data looks with the dose-response curve where we're adding in uh, uh, different amounts of T-Rex. So um, we felt that it was quite convincing that we could reproduce the findings in the past. We also looked at this data to look in terms of the FOXP3 in these T-Rex and there seemed to be no difference. And so that led us to ask the question, is it the T-Rex that are defective or is it the T-effector cells? And because we had an assay where we could um, mix and match, we were able to ask this. So this is the data I've already shown you, which shows the impaired suppression in a co-culture where you're using um, autologous T-Rex and T-effectors. So, of course, we thought it would be the T-Rex that were defective, so we first used diabetic T-Rex and co-cultured them with the effectors from healthy subjects. And long behold, we found that there was no difference in suppression. In fact, the Tregs from diabetics seemed to work just fine in this assay system. And then when we did the um, opposite experiment, we were able to demonstrate that it was actually the effector T cells from diabetics that were uh, resistant to regulation even when healthy Tregs were used. So that changed our way of looking at this problem from being a Treg problem to being a T effectors problem. Now, again, I, I, for people who are aficionados of T-Rex, um, we, we went in and, and did this again with natural T-Rex, so where we sorted the cells directly from the peripheral blood, so they're as close as we can get to what they should look like in humans. We saw the same effect. So we could use multiple different types of T-Rex, and we could still replicate this data. It wasn't related to differences in the proliferative capacity of the T-cells, and um, I'll get, I will have more data to support that now. And it wasn't associated with the fact that there were more memory T cells uh, in diabetics, which is also a well-known feature of diabetes. It seemed to be present irrespective of cell type. So when you study type 1 diabetes, you have to keep in mind that it's also a disease that's a metabolic disease, and um, metabolism is important in immune function. So we looked at a group of type 2 diabetics, and this is three type 2 diabetics on the left taking effector T cells from them, uh, suppressing them with, um, uh, with T-Rex from a healthy subject, and in black we have healthy subjects T effectors. And you can see they look identical. So this isn't a problem because of hyperglycemia. Uh, we actually matched uh, glucose at the time of draw and hemoglobin A1C for these subjects with our type 1 diabetics. So we felt confident that it wasn't a metabolic defect. We also then did a co-culture trick where you can uh, 
co-culture the effectors from a healthy subject and from um, a patient with diabetes and, and using CSFE to differentiate them, so this uh, intracellular dye, we were able to look to see in a culture where they're both present, are they both having a failure of suppression or is it only one group? And so this is showing the control cells can be suppressed fine, but the effector cells from a diabetic um, show this uh, impaired suppression. That suggested to us that it wasn't that the T effectors were secreting a cytokine that was impairing suppression, and they weren't actually uh, doing something to the T rex, that it was a T intrinsic problem. So um, that work we did um, several years ago, and one of the, the questions that arose from that is, is this T effector resistance something that precedes clinical disease? Um, and so we actually went to trial now where they have a lovely natural history study with samples collected over years, taking first degree relatives of uh, individuals with diabetes and we were able to look at individuals who had um, either uh, no autoantibodies, those that had autoantibodies but had not progressed to type 1 diabetes, and those who had, uh, were followed from the time they had antibodies to the time they developed diabetes. And we're actually able to get samples from two time points for each of these groups similarly spaced apart to ask this question, will we see T effector resistance in people before they develop disease? Um, uh, does it predict progression to diabetes? Do we only see it in this group of patients? Or does it actually occur at the time of onset? And so we just finished this data, this is unpublished, but we did this in um, 25 subjects per group, two time points, so it's 150 T uh, assays, and uh, one wonderful technician did all the work. And what we found when we did this is that, in fact, we see the uh, defect in suppression at onset of disease, um, suggesting that what we're finding is um, the T effector resistance doesn't occur prior to disease, but occurs around the time of disease development. Um, it may help allow progression of autoimmune inflammation. It may reflect ongoing inflammation. Um, but it now helps us think a little bit about mechanisms here by looking in this uh, pre-diabetic population. So it appears that T-effective resistance is an acquired trait in type 1 diabetes. Uh, it could be a cause or a consequence of disease. We don't know that yet. Um, and I think some of the interesting questions is whether it contributes to the progression of beta cell destruction after initiation of disease, um, and whether this is a, there's a mechanism that we could target therapeutically to, at the time of onset or prior to onset, keep progression from happening. So I put this question, can we learn from other autoimmune diseases, and I wouldn't ask it unless I had something to say about it. Um, so this is recent work uh, that we published earlier this year, and so Anya Snyder, who did this beautiful diabetes work, happened to be a neurology resident from Germany, and she teamed up with Mariko Kita, a neurologist at, um, at Virginia Mason, who, uh, to do this work. So she asked the question, so if there's T-effector resistance in type 1 diabetes, is it present in patients with MS? And it's known that there's T-reg defects in MS, but it hadn't really been looked at very closely. I think the reports on T-effector resistance included six subjects prior to this work. So Anya actually performed the identical assay looking only at T-effectors from the MS patients and uh, co-culturing them with control T-reg, so we were not asking about T-reg function in MS in the study. 
And she uh, looked at this and she saw paired suppression in the uh, relapsing permitting MS patients. All of, these treated, uh, all of these patients are untreated at the time that we studied them. Um, so she did that. We went to a second cohort. So the second cohort was done uh, about a year and a half later um, and collected as a completely unique population. So she was able to replicate that there was a T-effective resistance here at relapsing remaining MS patients. Now, uh, this gave us an opportunity, um, since time had passed, to think about what the mechanisms may be that lead to this in MS. And there's quite a few things that contribute to T-effector resistance, which has been described in animal models and in studies of human cells. It includes increased TH17 in memory cells. Um, also, cytokines like uh, IL-2 and IL-7 and IL-15 can promote T-effector resistance. Um, and uh, very notably, IL-6 and IL-21 have been shown to do this. Well, there's this beautiful work in psoriasis looking at the T-effector uh, resistance present in the skin of psoriatic patients where there's an increased amount of IL-6. So that seemed like low-hanging fruit to us, so we decided to ask that question in MS. Um, so what we did is we uh, looked in the serum of all of our MS patients, and there was no increase in circulating IL-6 in these patients. They also don't have elevated C-reactive proteins, which is a downstream marker of IL-6 in vivo. So it didn't appear to be elevated levels of IL-6, at least not systemically. So then what we did is we looked at the response of uh, the CD4 T cells of MS patients to IL-6 as measured by phosphorylation of STAT3. So this is a... Uh, situation where we're adding IL-6 for 10 minutes and then measuring phosphostat-3. And as you can see there, in a subset of patients, there's an increase in responsiveness to IL-6. We then asked the question, well, is this due to an increased expression of the IL-6 receptor on these subjects? And in fact, they did have increased IL-6 receptor expression on their cell surface. And there's a nice correlation between the responsiveness to IL-6 and the receptor expression in these individuals. So it, um, it appears that uh, there is an enhanced response to IL-6 in MS patients, uh, but no increase in IL-6 itself. Now, um, STAT-3 is uh, response uh, to multiple cytokine signals, and so we wanted to know, is this unique to IL-6? or is it something that can occur with other cytokines? So we looked at IL-27 and IL-10, both of which um, signal uh, using STAT-3, and we saw no difference. And we also saw no difference in the co-receptor for IL-6, GP-130. So it appeared that it was an IL-6-specific uh, alteration in signaling and um, uh, that it was likely due to the receptor. And then we wanted to take this back because, of course, the question we started with was, is this part of playing a part in the uh, resistance to suppression that we're seeing? And in fact, there's a, a correlation between the enhanced response to STAT3 and the ability to be inhibited. And then when we used a STAT3 inhibitor, we were able to take the MS patient's um, T cells and make them suppressible now in a Treg assay. Um, so in human studies, this was as close as we felt we could get to showing a mechanism. And the thing that became very interesting as we looked at the data, and, and you may be, as you're looking at my data, saying, well, everyone isn't the same, which is true. Um, and when we look at a patient, we all know that everyone isn't the same. And, and so we noticed that some of the subjects had normal um, 
inhibition, and some had impaired inhibition, and, and we had Mauricio Kita look at this data in a blinded fashion and tell us were there clinical differences in them. And it turned out that the patients with normal um, suppression were people that weren't on any medications because, in fact, they had incredibly mild disease. They were individuals who hadn't had an enhancing lesion on their MRI for more than two years, um, hadn't had any flares, whereas the individuals with the impaired inhibition were people who'd had um, exacerbations over the last two years. And in fact, they weren't on any medication because they were either just diagnosed and being started on it at the time we drew them, or they were patients who were in between medications um, uh, at the time. So um, by picking people not on medications, we actually got a broad range of clinical um, features, and that helped us differentiate this outcome. And this was seen in both cohorts. I'm just showing you data from one. So the implications were is whether enhanced IL-6 signaling could predict the more aggressive disease in our patients, um, and could it help us target a therapy to these patients? And, and as um, it's interesting that the drug tocilizumab, the anti-IL-6 receptor, has not been tested in MS. And of course, we now have JAK inhibitors coming online. So these are two thoughts of therapeutics we could use in a subset of patients who um, have this um, abnormal signaling pathway. So I started with diabetes, so I gotta keep the story going. So then the question we asked is, okay, we know there's two factor resistance in type 1 diabetes, but we haven't gotten to a mechanism yet. By any chance, could this enhanced IL-6 receptor signaling be involved in type 1? And so um, a, a new investigator in my lab, Christian Hunhausen, took this question on in the last uh, few months, and so performed very similar assays looking at responsiveness um, of uh, CD4 T cells in type 1 diabetics to IL-6, and you can see there's enhanced phosphorylation of STAT3. There's an increase in the IL-6 receptor expression on the cell surface, and this correlates quite nicely with that enhanced signaling. Um, so it appears that um, we haven't made the link yet between uh, the T effector resistance and this phenotype, but we at least know that um, there is this abnormal signaling pathway in type 1 diabetics at this point. And I think, and, and what we've then started looking at is what's the mechanism of this in type 1? Is it genetic or environmental? And interestingly, as we were doing this work, uh, John Todd's group published this nice paper um, looking at a functional IL-6 receptor variant that is associated with type 1 diabetes, um, it's actually a quite common allele, but the protective allele actually leads to decreased IL-6 receptor expression on the cell surface and decreased IL-6 responsiveness. So that would be consistent with, with what we're observing in diabetes, that there's, uh, that there's an increased expression in the individuals um, with disease. We've actually typed all of our subjects for this now. This isn't the sole reason that we're seeing enhanced IL-6 receptor expression, but as you see me walk through this and think about how do genes tell us about pathways, we found the pathway about the same time people found a gene that was important. Yeah? I just have a question. So when you're, you're showing total CD4, do you fractionate out of memory, and is it increased mostly in memory? Well, for the IL-6, it's present in both, and I just didn't show that data, but it's, um, it's present in the memory and naive, so naive cells actually express the receptor uh, pretty well, um, uh, so, which is interesting because then you can get into what's IL-6 doing in terms of lineage commitment, and we're investigating that, but I don't know the answer. Yeah? Could you go back and on, on, on to understand 
from a mechanistic standpoint, my concept thinking about the filament data mm -hmm. is that it's a continuum and that whatever you're seeing should be present in the antibody positive pre-diabetes patient. And since you didn't see an effect of hypoglycemia in effect two patients, it's I'm having trouble understanding why the effect you only saw it in the hyperglycemic. Well, I, you know, I wouldn't call them hyper. I don't think it's hyperglycemia that's the cause, but I think it's that you have enough inflammation to have disease and be diagnosed. So you actually saw the T effector resistance. It starts getting lower in the antibody positives, non-progressors at phase two as well. So I don't think we have it well enough to find if it's only after you're diagnosed and have had hyperglycemia, or if it's at that point where you see that more progressive inflammation and destruction. What I think that argues is that this mechanism is likely not genetically determined. So this gene is really rare. I don't think this gene is the cause of T-effector resistance in type 1 diabetes. So this IL-6 signaling, if it is a factor um, in the majority of patients, and we still need to demonstrate that, um, might be an acquired thing, and it could be acquired from epigenetic modifications or, or other aspects. So we have a ways to go to figure that, and, and you're right. I think the important thing is the trial net data really starts making you ask mechanistically what's going on. Did you see the upregulation in the last six or seven on CD8s or even on other cells in the peripheral yeah. cell population? So I really nicely am always avoiding all those other cells, but um, I'm not really. <laughs> Um, we do see it in uh, CD8 cells, and, and a lot of the stories I'm going to be telling today, we see very interesting finding in CD8s, and I think when you start talking about the IL-6 receptor, we have to even think further about neutrophils and other cell types. So this phenotype that I'm very much focusing on right now in the CD4 T-cell population, I think we need to expand the way we think about it, um, that this pathway is an important pathway for a lot of reasons, and it may not just be CD4 T-cells. I am oversimplifying it. <laughs> All right, so that gets me to part two. Let's see how I'm doing. Okay. Um, and, and this story is um, a, a story where we decided to examine a signaling pathway based on the genetics of uh, type 1 diabetes. And this is the IL-2 pathway. Um, we know IL-2 is important in terms of its role in the persistence and development of Tregs. We know that STAT-5 signaling, which is downstream of IL-2, is required for FOXP3 expression. And we actually know in the NFT mouse that the maintenance of Tregs is actually reduced in the pancreas, and that's thought be, uh, because of a downregulation of the CD25 uh, expression and, and treatment with exogenous IL-2 uh, treats these animals. Um, and, and what we focused on are multiple SNPs in the IL-2 receptor, CD25, and then also in a uh, protein tyrosine phosphatase called PTPN2, um, which is uh, important in cytokine signaling. This gene is interesting because it's shared with Crohn's disease and rheumatoid arthritis. So this is work from Alice Long, and I know she's been here to, to speak with you in the past as well. And this is just showing the IL-2 signaling pathway through the high affinity receptor. Um, JAK1 and JAK2 are involved, and then STAT5 is phosphorylated. Um, that leads to inter intermediate signaling. So Alice showed when you looked at healthy subjects versus controls at high dose and low dose that you saw blunted IL-2 responses in the CD4 T cells of 
individuals with diabetes. If you look at the CD25 drug population, that would be the T drugs, you also see this impaired response to IL-2. Actually, functionally, she looked at this and um, what you can do to assess um, IL-2 responsiveness is to think about Tregs, and they require IL-2 to maintain FOXP3. So in a healthy subject, if you culture them in the absence of IL-2, you lose expression. If you culture them in the presence of IL-2, you maintain expression. Um, but diabetic subjects lose expression even in the presence of IL-2, and this is shown for a cohort of subjects. So, we know there's this impaired signaling, it, it translates in this setting to a loss of FOXP3 in low in IL-2 um, uh, cultures, and it also translates to an impaired induction of FOXP3 in the presence of IL-2. So this is a healthy control in media, you activate those cells, you get expression of FOXP3. If you add IL-2, you get more FOXP3. If you're a diabetic, you don't see a difference when you look at induction in the absence of IL-2 because they make the same amount of IL-2, but they don't, that's not a major factor here. But in the presence of IL-2, they behave exactly as though there's no additional IL-2 present. So it seems like there's a functional link here between Tregs and this blunted response to IL-2. How much IL-2 is in those cultures? You know, I don't remember for this culture. Um, I, I think there is, it's pretty high um, in these cultures. All of the signaling was done with dose, dose titrations, and we see it across multiple doses and low and high dose. Um, so one of the questions we had is, is blunted IL-2 signaling in diabetes uh, linked to these uh, genetic variants uh, that are associated? And so first we looked at healthy subjects where we could take individuals who had this variant in isolation without the complexity of having type 1 diabetes. And this is the PTPN2 variant. This is um, uh, individuals whose heterozygous carrying the risk allele, which is the C. And when we do this, looking at the um, Tregs, we see blunted IL-2 responses in healthy subjects who have this risk variant. We look at one of the CD25 uh, risk variants uh, that's associated with type 1 diabetes. It's very rare not to carry at least one copy of this gene. <laughs> But um, you can see a significant diminishment in IL-2 responses in the Tregs if you're homozygous for the risk variant. So it appears two of the genes that are associated with type 1 diabetes give impaired IL-2 signaling. Um, and in fact, if you look at the diabetic cohort based on PTPN2, you can see that there's a significant blunting in IL-2 if you're homozygous for this risk variant. But I actually, so we can attribute PTPN2's variants on some of this impact. But this is the population that we've been really interested in. These individuals don't have this risk variant, they have type 1 diabetes, yet they're significantly lower than individuals uh, who are healthy controls. And um, in fact, when we hold the IL-2 receptor and PTPN2 risk, so we have non-risk, um, our diabetics still show blunting. So, one way to interpret that data is that there are multiple genetic variants, some of them quite rare, so we aren't even aware of them, that can lead to blunted IL-2 responses. Um, alternatively, there may be environmental factors that can alter IL-2 signaling uh, as well. In any case, we think that this impacts Tregs fitness. And this is 
data just to show that as we're thinking about a genetic variant, it should be something that's fixed over time, um, if this is something that's encoded in your genes. And so we look at healthy controls, and, if they, and we look at them over two different time points, months apart, and this is replicable data here. So you can see the lows, the homozygous risk are low, and they're consistently low, and uh, the non-risk are up here. And when we compare controls and diabetics on this, we also see the same thing. So this is a um, phenotype that's uh, consistent over time. So because trial lab was kind enough to send us uh, samples and the NIH kind enough to fund us to look at them, we, when we thought of one vial, we looked at the T-effective resistance assay, but we also looked at IL-2 signaling at the same time. So the design is the same, because in fact the data is from the same subjects where we looked at um, this response, and here I've just put the data together for you on this. Um, there's, we did two time points in each case, but what you can see here is that antibody negatives um, have uh, more normal IL-2 responses, and that we see blunted IL-2 responses in all antibody positives, whether they're progressors or not. Um, so my thinking about this is that actually the blunted IL-2 response is consistent with a genetically driven uh, feature, but also that it may contribute very early in the development of uh, type 1 diabetes in this case, really even at the point of developing autoantibodies. Jane, in, in the antibody-positive non-progressors who have that phenotype, you have people without the risk allele of C25? Yeah, so we don't have all of these individuals genotyped yet because they're trial net subjects, but we will have that. Uh, my guess is that we aren't going to be able to you know, we can genotype all the CD25 risk variants and PTPM2, and I'm going to bet, at, looking at some of our other data, that many of these patients won't have either of them. Doesn't mean they don't have a gene, it's just not a gene that we picked up from GBOS. <coughs> and then just briefly, we, I've had the good fortune of, of working with Carla Greenbaum in the ITN on a, on a um, study where we um, looked at um, treatment of patients with IL-2 and rapamycin, and the idea is that this was therapeutic in mice and it enhanced Tregs, and so uh, this was given to nine patients in an open-label trial to see if um, we could improve um, their beta cell function. These were people already with diabetes, and um, what we see is that when you give IL-2, you really increase the number of Tregs in the diabetic, and, and you can see this huge increase over the first month where individuals are getting IL-2, they get rapamycin for three months, but we, we lose the uh, Tregs right away once we get rid of the IL-2 and, and they stabilize out. So we could induce Tregs or we could expand Tregs. We also were able to see an enhancement in the IL-2 responses in these individuals, and that isn't surprising when you give IL-2 people upregulate CD25 and they should be more responsive. But the thing that was amazing in the study is one year later, they've been off drug now for more than nine months, they still had uh, enhanced responses to IL-2. So this was really exciting to us. Um, the downside was the patients actually didn't do better, and um, in this early phase where we gave IL-2, we saw a really, and rapamycin, we saw a relatively profound drop in beta cell function. Um, why that is, is probably not because of the data you see here, but the data that's in our paper showing that there's a bump in natural killer cells, there's a bump in eosinophils acutely. There's a lot of players here that are responsive to IL-2 that may be causing damage. Um, and then rapamycin.
trials that may also have caused some damage. So new trials, I think this is useful data because new trials are now using much lower doses of IL-2 with the hope of targeting very specifically. Yeah. So one of those lines is we were in that trial and one of those subjects is ours. Yeah. And uh, a lower dose would be much better yeah. because of the side effects. Oh. Yeah, Carla called me with the first dose of this, and um, it's not a well-tolerated therapy. And, um, you know, so David Klatsman has finished his low-dose clinical trial. Um, others are going forward. You know, I think we have to think, do we go really low, or do we find a better, more targeted way to hit Tregs? Because eosinophils actually have the IL-2 receptor on our surface, so we're always going to have to deal with hybrids and bilia, which we as clinicians know it's not a good thing to spend your time with. Um, so yeah, so it was an interesting trial, but um, uh, just thought I'd bring that around with the whole story of IL-2. And the other part of the story I wanted to talk about is that obviously I'm interested in other autoimmune diseases, and that CD25 SNP I showed you that causes blunted IL-2 signaling is present in MS. Um, and so we looked across diseases, these are healthy controls, this is a group of diabetics, and Here's a group of MS patients, and they too show blunted IL-2 responses in their uh, Treg population, whereas lupus patients don't. And lupus patients are known not to make enough IL-2, but they respond to IL-2 just fine. Um, the other thing that's interesting about this data is MS patients have normal IL-2 responses in their CD4 population, so this is very specific for the IL of the CD25 bright population, which makes sense since they have a genetic association with the CD25 receptor, but not with uh, P2PN2, and I would suggest that maybe Tregs are more important here in MS. So kind of to sum up this part of the talk about uh, T-cell regulation is, this is the, the picture we use to talk about uh, diabetes and its risk. Um, uh, we think that this impaired T-reg fitness due to blunted IL-2 signaling um, is likely driven by genetics and may contribute to the development of autoimmunity uh, in the earlier points. Um, and when I have this backwards, I apologize. It should be, you know, this is the IL-2 section, and the T-effector resistance, we think, is, is coming into play here later in the development of diabetes. Um, and so I think each of these defects, as we get to understand them, may impact a different stage of disease. And of course, that's important as we think about where to do a therapeutic intervention in, in patients uh, prior to disease and at disease onset. And I also want to say that the heterogeneity isn't such a bad thing. I know when you look at the data, you're seeing these variants and, and you look at the populations and not everyone fits this paradigm. But actually, if we look at patients and, and accept that, it may help us uh, decide which patients are going to be more responsive to a targeted therapy to a pathway. So before I move on, I'm happy to take any questions or can we move on to the second part. Yeah. Um, have you looked at the T-effector resistance phenotype in any other chronic inflammatory diseases that are not associated with the same autoimmune yeah. genotype? I think that's a really good question. It's been described in other autoimmune diseases like lupus, and in lupus it's seen during active disease and not during quiescent disease, suggesting the inflammatory milieu. I don't know if others have looked at chronic infections, which would be a nice thing to look at. Um, and, and I think uh, as we start dissecting the different things leading to it, it would be useful. Yeah. Um, 
finish up with a, a little bit of a different story. I, I don't think I'm going to mention T-Rex for the rest of the talk. Um, and this is the approach that I described where we start with a genetic variant, and then from the genetic variant, we try to identify a pathway that's it impacts, and then go from there to apply it to the autoimmune disease. And the gene that we've been working on the longest is a gene called PTPN22. It's known as LIP. Uh, it's expressed uh, in uh, lymphocytes and monocytes and macrophages. It um, was initially known to inhibit proximal T cell receptor signaling by dephosphorylating activated tyrosines. And the polymorphism uh, in this uh, gene is uh, linked with multiple autoimmune diseases. Um, and it actually leads to amino acid change in the conserved SH3 domain of the protein. So there's a lot of controversy around this uh, variant, and it, it continues. Um, I think we're going to try to we'll probably get it together to some degree in the near future. But one of the questions was, this a gain of function or a novel function? We had noted initially that there was blunted, um, blunted T cell receptor signaling as measured by calcium flux um, in T cells. Uh, and I'm going to talk about the B cell story more today. But others have seen a loss of function and hyper-responsiveness. Um, and uh, I'm going to touch on, on some mouse models as well. So there's a lot of controversy around its role in T cells um, and its signaling. I, I think we're going to talk more about the functional outcomes. But when we started this work, so we were looking at T cells because that's where this gene is, was known to be important. And um, my, uh, one of my technicians came in, and we luckily added CD19 to our flow panel. Um, and she said there's something weird about the B cells. And so um, we started studying the B cells because there was a decrease in the memory B cell compartment in individuals who carried the risk variant. These are healthy controls again. So we knew PTPN22 impacted T cell receptor signaling, but here we had some change in B cells. And the question was, is this a B cell intrinsic feature or is this um, secondary to alter T cell function? And we're able to show that uh, calcium flux when you stimulate through the B cell receptor was blunted in the memory B cells of subjects who carry this variant. And this is just showing that data um, in more subjects. And this is showing the data for proliferation. And you can see if you have healthy subjects and you have a profound phenotype, you don't need a lot to show um, this difference. So, that led to the identification of the B cell receptor signaling pathways being influenced by this variant um, and really leading to the question, how does this contribute to disease pathology? Um, to link this variant, you know, the, the variant to the actual function, we uh, used a trick where we took the cells from our subjects and we incubated them with an inhibitor of LIP and we were able to show that we could normalize signaling with that inhibitor. So again, in a human unmanipulated cell, this was about as good as we could do to directly link the phenotype with the genotype. So we spent some time now asking the question, does this B cell signaling alter tolerance in B cells? And this is the pathway for tolerance in B cells. So receptor editing could have been impacted, energy, um, or um, the uh, escape of autoreactive B cells into the periphery. So in collaboration with David Rawlings, we been working on this, and also we've collaborated with Eric Meffrey, who's done work in this area as well. What we first saw is that there was no change in receptor editing um, in these individuals. So we don't think that is where this uh, lack of tolerance is, uh, is evolving. 
But what we did do is we looked at the transitional B cells, um, and we know that signal strength is very important for their development uh, and then their movement out into the naive B cell pool. And there's an increase in the transitional B cells um, in these subjects. And this data is really important working with uh, Carla um, because transitional B cells change vastly based on age, particularly if you're young. So we have made sure that we've had um, quite a bit of matching in terms of age for this work. The other thing we observed is an expansion of the um, uh, uh, BND cell population, which is an energetic population in the periphery that is thought to be enriched for our reactive cells. So one of the questions we have is, well, if you have an expansion of the population, is it because they're not dying? And we knew LIP had an impact uh, at this location um, that it, it, it blocks uh, phosphorylation of SIG. And so we proposed that if you had the very end, it actually had enhanced function and you had less death. And when we looked at this, we looked at caspase after stimulation and we saw less death in the controls who were at risk variant. We looked at transitional cells, and we also saw less death, and importantly, an increase in BCL2 and BIM. So it appears that having this variant uh, allows these transitional B cells and naive B cells improve survival. Um, and so that's led us, and we've done more work in this area, to really focus on survival as the factor that's being impacted. Um, and I'm not going to go into the details today, but I think their signal strength is part of that story, but there's also, LIP has multiple binding partners, and, and it's likely impacting um, AKT phosphorylation uh, in, with basal stimulation. So is this phenotype present in disease? And that's really what I, what I want to get to, because I showed you data from controls, so then we went to our diabetics, and in fact, we saw a decrease in memory B cells that mirrors what we saw with the PTPN22 subjects. We saw an increase in immature or transitional B cells and an increase in the BND population in diabetics compared to controls. Um, and um, this occurs irrespective of genotype. And I just am going to show the MS data here on the far right because MS is not associated with this variant. And in fact, every time we look for the phenotype of this variant, we do not see it in MS. So there's another autoimmune disease that doesn't look like uh, type 1 in this setting. Um, so if we wanted to look at uh, the phenotype further, so that was just looking at flow data, this is looking at signaling. The red is the control, and the blue and green is calcium flux from a diabetic, one of whom has a CC and one of whom is a CT. And when you do a group of them, you can see I have the controls on the left, this is what someone carrying the risk variant is. Our diabetics, irrespective of genotype, have blunted BCR signaling, so they mirror this um, feature. And this is showing that immature data, so I showed you that it was increased, the transitional cells were increased in diabetics, but again, it doesn't matter with respect to the gene. Um, and um, this was mirrored in the work um, of Eric Methry's group. When they looked at an ink, they saw an increased number of autoreactive naive B cells. They see that in individuals who carry the risk variant who are healthy, but when they look at diabetics, they see an increase in these autoreactive B cells irrespective of genotype. So nicely this was mirrored in both settings. Um, and actually when we look at cross diseases here, again I'm using the memory phenotype uh, as a marker. We have our controls, we have our MS patients. 
I have an unusual interest in relapsing polychondritis, um, which is also associated with this variant. And so the polychondritis and the type 1s have, blunt, uh, have lower memory. And these are first degree relatives of type 1s. And, and I always point that out because there's a reason I screen for first degree relatives. Because first degree relatives actually usually don't look exactly like our healthy controls. And so, you know, one of the issues here is this phenotype reflecting either genetics in these individuals or uh, increased risk. And this is again showing the uh, data for um, this BND uh, population where it's increased in diabetics, it's increased in relapsing polychondritis and associated disease, but not in MS. So um, just to conclude briefly, um, with the PTPN22 variant, we have increased amount of reactive B cells are present in the periphery, and that's been confirmed by our Nefries group. An increase in transitional MD&D cells. We think that this is due to a decrease in apoptotic cell death in the naive B cell and transitional B cells. Um, and, and we've shown that alterations in BCL2 down and altered calcium flux. And that I think importantly, when we take that pathway and go to diabetes, we see that it is mirrored in diabetes. Um, we think this is an important pathway in diabetes, and that PTPN22 variant is not the only way to get there, similar to what we said about IL2. Um, and it's a finding we see across autoimmune diseases associated with this variant. And, and so uh, just finally, I want to show a little data from a project that I've been doing with David Rollins and Patrick Cannon, asking the question, I've shown you the data we have. I think it helps us start uh, understanding human disease, but we can't do everything, and we can't uh, prove certain aspects of development uh, and selection. So can we model this in a mouse, and um, what could it teach us about mechanism? And, and to do that, we've um, developed a consortium where Pat is helping us identify causative gene variants, because the SNPs that are now identified are not all causative. Um, so he's working on developing cost, identifying positive genetic variants, and in fact, we're looking for coding variants, which then can be knocked in and modeled in the mouse. And at the same time, we're continuing this work with humans so that we can say, does the mouse look like human, and can we make sense of it? Um, and this is just two approaches we've taken. One is to take people who have a rare variant, but it should be a very deleterious variant. And this is one in PTPN22 where there's an exon 18 deletion. So this is a much more profound change in the protein. And we were able to have all of these individuals in our cohort sequenced for this. Pat had identified it. And we went to see, well, do the people with the risk variant look like the people with the, um, with the exon 18 mutation? And um, in fact, they do look a lot like our other uh, individuals. So we're using that when we can to look at very rare variants to see if the same uh, defect is seen. And then I think what's been really productive is doing this uh, knocking mouse. And um, uh, PAP um, is very homologous to the human protein. And so one is able to actually make a very similar amino, the same amino acid change in uh, amino acid 619 and asks the question, what happens in this mouse and how does it impact B cell development? And there's a lot of data here in this paper recently published. Um, and I think the most important take home message is that these animals do develop autoantibodies, um, that they have an expansion of their transitional uh, B cells similar to what we see in humans 
and they have a reduced uh, apoptosis in those uh, B cells. So that mirrors what we've seen in the humans. There's some things that don't mirror what we've described, and one of them is that these mice have hyper-responsive T cells. Um, and that's shown on the left here. This is the wild type, and this is the risk variant, um, either a HET or a homozygous. Our original studies suggested that TCR signaling was blunted in memory T cells, so, um, you know, that didn't look the same. And uh, I scratched my head. David scratched his head because for neither of this, us, this is good. It's not good if the mouse doesn't replicate the human, and it's not good if the human's confusing. So I asked him to age his mice. Because <laughs> as it turned out, he uh, was looking at young mice with no memory cells. And when he did that, he actually saw that in the aged mice, the memory cells showed blunted T cell receptor signaling. Um, so that's somewhat helpful, but it does raise the issue of what's happening over time. And when I look at a subject and I look at a phenotype, it may not be the way they started, but there may be factors over time that have altered the function of T cells. So um, I think that this has been, is going to be very productive when we start looking and trying to understand what the initiating mechanisms are and then what mechanisms are involved as we age and our immune system uh, develops. Um, so this is ongoing work with David, and we're doing multiple knockings at this time. Um, and so I think just finally, um, using this approach, we um, have identified multiple regulatory defects and type of diabetes. Each de defect could impact a different stage of disease, and we think genetics can be a guide for these pathways. Um, it's not the only answer, obviously. And um, I'm a big proponent of studying diseases across autoimmune diseases to demonstrate the shared and unique features of the disease. I think that will help us understand them and treat them better. And then heterogeneity among subjects may be present, and we need to think about that uh, for our targeting interventions. And I uh, think integrating mass models in this way can be really helpful. Um, and this is my group here at Benaroya. Um, who are all involved in the work are my collaborators, David Rawlings Lab, um, Carla Greenblum, Alice Long, Karen Sosalati, as well as Kevin Cannon. Um, we have a large translational group who, without them, I couldn't do the work. Of course, CrowdNet's uh, helping this work uh, is central. And uh, my funding sources, I also collaborate with uh, several pharmaceuticals who are listed as well. So thank you for your attention and happy to take questions. one person and sample over two years, say 20 different samples of blood, will you get the same, I mean, I would imagine with some of the disease, you're going to get a lot of variations if you sample from the same person. So have you done those? And how does it compare that we have this sort of static, um, you know, snapshot where you can control the type of diabetes? Yeah, so we do with um, quite a few of our studies, we usually have at least one or we do replicas. We don't do 20 samples over a year. Um, it's something we've talked about, and particularly we've talked about it, um, and I think that data will come out. Um, then we get into the complexity of how do we, what are all the ways we want to control that? Do we want to do the same time fasting every day? Um, what I showed you with the genetic signaling stuff is that's pretty fixed, and with our trial net data, we were also able to demonstrate that um, 
they replicate phenotypes. And with the MS and diabetes IL-6 signaling, it's impressive how we have high people and low people, and at two different time points, they're high and low. So I feel that those signaling features are very consistent. Um, I think the other stuff's, uh, there's more wiggle room in terms of the flow data, for example. So in terms of the resistance of the affected T cells, so since pretty the difference is pretty tight between patients. So I was wondering if you did comparison for the gene expression between groups of patients and whether you see that you see a difference before or after stimulation. Because you have to stimulate the T cells. Yeah, so the data is is sitting there right now. So we've done RNA seq of the dividing population and the undivided population and diabetics and because we have to control for stimulation, um, and so we're analyzing the data. Okay. <laughs> or somebody's analyzing the data, I actually not So I think that's an important question, and I give us an idea about that.